is from Luke 4, verses 14 to 22. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. For those of you who have a memory... And who care? And who are here last week? You remember we read that same passage, right? Nobody's nodding their head. I mean, yeah, a few of you remember? We're going to read it three weeks in a row. First week was an emphasis from that passage related to the good news, okay? You know, the overall idea of this passage is the largeness of the gospel. It's huge. It's gigantic. It's global. It's enormous. So the first week, we used that passage to focus on the good news as redemption, salvation of the soul. This week, we used the same passage to focus on the good news as compassion, reaching out to others. Next week, we used the same passage to focus on the good news, the gospel, that's what the good news means. The gospel. The good news. as justice. Because Jesus was concerned about all three. And that's just scratching the surface of what the gospel means. I want to begin by uh, reading some quotes. Some of them from uh, Christian theologian types and others not. Here's the first one. I feel sorry for the man who cannot feel the whip when it is laid on the back of another man. Abraham Lincoln. This quote, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. The philosopher Plato. Or this. No one has ever become poor by giving. Hmm. And Frank. Another. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more 
in light of what they suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You have not lived today. You have not lived today. Until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. John Bunyan. Or how about this one? Many of you will know this name. Biblical orthodoxy. By the way, which we pride ourselves in around here. If you don't, surely you know I do. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Francis Schaeffer. Or how about this from a contemporary preacher and writer? For years, says his author, I thought my assignment or the church's assignment was to articulate the gospel. You know what that means? The gospel and nothing more. Now I believe that if we don't support the verbal expression of the gospel with physical demonstration of compassion, we are simply not imitating Jesus. Max Lucado. I give you these quotes just to pique your interest in the notion of the gospel as compassion. But I also want to acknowledge something that perhaps is not as true today as it once was, but to a certain extent still is true. That among those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and are passionate about the gospel, there seems to be historically a bit of a divide. It's as is often the case to the right and to the left, right? To the right and to the left. I know this is my left, but that's your right. So that's what I'm doing. And so to the left, your left, the more liberal approach to the gospel has often been what is called the social gospel. That the gospel as good news is good news for those who are impoverished. And for that reason, the gospel means demonstrating the good news to people who are in poverty, figuring out a way to release them from poverty. And that's the good news. That would be on the left. On the right, which is more or less the tradition that we're a part of, it would be something like the gospel is the salvation of the soul. That is the good news. Jesus came to save, to seek and to save those who were lost and to redeem them from the curse of sin. Here's the thing. Both of them are true. How did this big divide get started? Well, it's probably as old as the gospel itself. We would really look into it historically, but at least theologically in the history of theology, the big divide probably started at the turn, not of this century, but the last century. Right about somewhere between 1800 and 1900, it really became accentuated. Now, there's a lot of people we could refer to who would help us understand this divide. Right? So I could use lots of names, but I'm just going to use basically two to describe it. The first one was a man, uh, actually a Baptist pastor and later church history professor, 
named Walter Rauschenbusch. And when you like a name like that, I don't know why my mom didn't put that in as my middle name. Robert Rauschenbusch. Whitaker, that could have really sounded important. Uh, he, he was a, a Baptist pastor in New York City at the turn of the century. Now, if you know anything about the history of New York City at the turn of the century, there was some serious, serious divide between the rich and the poor. Enormous squalor, to put it another way. This Baptist pastor said, it made me rethink my whole theology, in effect. And with a couple of quotes strung together, let me basically tell you what he said. He said about the gospel, it's time for us to move into a new era. He said the old evangel, or evangelism, or the news concerning the gospel, the old evangel of the soul must be replaced by the new evangel of the kingdom of God. Almost sounds good. It's not a matter, he said, of getting people into heaven, but transforming people's lives here on earth so that the kingdom of God can come. Now, at first blush, you may say, well, that might be a helpful emphasis if people are focused too much on the salvation of the soul, but it was more than that. Historically, it became another trajectory in theology, which basically went like this. The good news concerning Jesus Christ is the good news concerning the transformation of society. To lift up those who are in material poverty and to bring equality to all human beings. And when we do that, the kingdom of God will come. And that's what Jesus was all about. Now, of course, there's another opposite extreme, correct? Always is. I used to illustrate that extreme uh, a man called J.N. Darby, who was famous for his staunch premillennial, excuse me, let me say that again, premillennial approach to eschatology, the end times, how it was all going to wrap up, right? And it's probably best represented, his theology, he's probably best represented in the, in the Schofield Reference Bible, if anybody knows anything about that. And basically, the theology describes this present world as beyond redemption. It's bad, and it's only going to get worse. We're going downhill all the time. And since there is this steady deterioration and we're going downhill all the time, if that's the trajectory, says this point of view, what's the point in social reform? It's not going to matter anyway. Because things are going to get worse and worse and worse and then God's going to come back in the person of Jesus Christ and fix the whole thing. And until then, don't invest your time in any kind of social reformation. Just share the gospel in the traditional evangelical sense. Just salvation of the soul. Because that's all that matters. Now you may say to yourself, I know what you're trying to do here, Bob. You're trying to paint me into a corner. I'm neither one of those. Well, good for you. I'm glad you're so balanced, but I'm not always balanced. 
Never have been. It's been a big challenge in my life, balance. And on any number of occasions, because of my heritage, I tip in the direction of the salvation of the soul. Now, let me be abundantly clear about something, okay? I don't want anybody going out of here without hearing this. For me, the primacy of the gospel, the good news, is about the salvation of the soul. It is. However, primacy should not eclipse the complexity of the gospel. Put another way, simplicity or simplistic thinking can frequently eclipse complexity, right? We just latch on to the one thing. And it is our disposition, I'm talking about my tradition and yours, to latch on to that one thing, the salvation of the soul, and allow the other important elements of the gospel to be eclipsed. It happens, folks. It happens for us. It really does. Here's another thing I want to mention about the gospel and about Jesus' teachings. It was true. It was true. That Jesus routinely spoke about a spiritual reality behind an event, a healing, or any other kind of teaching that he was talking about. So, for instance... In my opinion, it's absolutely true that Jesus suggests that the worst kind of poverty is spiritual poverty. I think it's true that Jesus says that the worst kind of darkness is not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. And I think Jesus says that the worst kind of death is not the physical body, it's spiritual death. I think all those things are true. However, the message of the gospel concerning compassion and justice is equally true. Because otherwise, as Francis Schaeffer says, our gospel is the ugliest thing in the world if it's just focused on the salvation of the soul. And not on compassion. So, coming out of this passage and many other passages this morning, I only have three things to say. Yeah, you've heard that before, right? That means three points. First point is this. God protects the poor. Let me say before I try to illustrate that with Scripture passages, you better be on God's side. Not good to be on the other side. Listen to um, these passages concerning God as rescuer, defender of the fatherless, the widow, the poor, the oppressed. First passage, do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. Translation, if you're in court, Oppressing the needy. You're on the opposite side of God and you're going to get kicked. Because God's going to do it. Or how about this passage? 
Whoever is kind to the poor, it's a little better. (laughs) Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. Or how about this passage? Give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. I think this is an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy. I think this must be where Paul got that phrase, give cheerfully and not with a begrudging heart. But anyway, don't do it with a grudging heart, says God. Then because of this, this giving with a joyful heart, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. By the way, this is Moses talking to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. He goes on by saying this. I want to give you an update, says Moses. You'll be blessed in every way because you're doing God's work. But don't forget this. It's a reality check. In spite of that, there will always be the poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you. I command you to be open-handed. Better to do that. Now, this too. I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. Those are the words uh, that come from the Old Testament. Now, there's a bunch more of them, and I'm not going to go into those. But you know what those are? They're words of the prophet from God. And the one speaking through the prophet is the invisible God. Yahweh. The invisible God, Yahweh, told the people to do this. To live this way. But the invisible God, Yahweh, that you had to tremble even to pronounce His name because that might be blasphemous. He was so wholly other. That invisible God, Yahweh, who those listeners heard about, never walked into the camp. And gave to the poor. That invisible God, Yahweh, didn't walk outside the camp and touch a leper and heal him. That invisible God, Yahweh, never got down on the level of the poor and the oppressed. But in Jesus Christ, the invisible God, takes on flesh. And he touches the leper. And he heals the blind. And he raises up the lame. And he looks into the eyes with compassion and overwhelming love on the prostitute. And he visits with all kinds of sinners and publicans and the hated The invisible God of the universe in Jesus Christ shows us what compassion is like. No longer is it just a command. He does it. Now, you know what? That's a powerful story, isn't it? I mean, that's just totally awesome. But 
That's all it is. Powerful story. Totally awesome. Unless you take it, take it to the next level, which is exactly the way Jesus intended for you to take it. Let me use the phrase from the old King James Version, which just says it better a lot of times. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Contemporary, be like me. Imitate my actions. Have compassion on everyone. You know, um, he also said on one occasion, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I ask you to? Let's flip the phrase upside down. Just shut up already and quit calling me Lord unless you're willing to do what I call you to do. I don't want to hear it anymore. If you're going to call me Lord, then live like me. Be an absolute servant like I was. Then I'll know you mean it. Okay, so God protects the poor and Jesus demonstrated it in his very hands, in his life. And then, then we have questions, right? I know what your question is, because it's mine. I also know your question was articulated very, very precisely by an antagonist of Jesus himself. By a teacher of the law who is always trying to put Jesus in his place and catch him off guard. And the teacher of the law asked Jesus on one occasion, when Jesus called him to love his neighbor, he said, so, Rabbi, who's my neighbor? You know what's so great about those teachers of the law? They're saying the things that I guarantee you were already in the disciples' heads. And they didn't have the courage to ask. Because he's saying what I'm thinking. Sounds great, Jesus. Now, who am I supposed to give to? That guy? He seems entitled. That person? They're going to use it badly. The list goes on. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And you know the story, right? He tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. A man is beat within an inch of his life. He's in a ditch alongside the road. And two high-ranking religious officials come by and they pass by the other side of the road and leave the man in the ditch. And then the Samaritan comes by. Now we've got to assume based on the story that the man in the ditch is a Jewish follower of Yahweh. The third person who comes by is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is despised by the Jews. And really, for the most part, the Samaritans despise the Jews in equal measure. They hate each other. And the story is the Samaritan picks him up, washes off his sores. Oh, by the way, did you ever notice the danger zone? Where were the guys that robbed him? Waiting for the next person? Maybe the Samaritan who was washing his wounds? The Samaritan took a risk. He loved the man. He washed him. He put him on his donkey, took him to an end and said, keep him here until he recovers. And I'm coming back this way. And when I come back, I'm going to pay you everything, everything that he owes. Jesus said, that's your neighbor. Oh, but of course he was talking to us, right? Because <laughs> we asked the question. 
who's our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone who's created in the image of God, which means everyone. Let's think about the story. The the culturally despised ones. Who are they? I mean, for our culture. Maybe they're different in different parts of the world. We know that to be true. Who are culturally despised ones? They're our neighbors. Or, put it another way, who are the people that you personally despise? It's really personal. They're your neighbor. Or, who are the people that despise you? They're your neighbor. It's difficult, isn't it, to approach the subject um, because we do have legitimate questions. Who do we help and how? It's difficult to approach this subject because we could exhaust ourselves doing this all the time and get nothing else done. There's all kinds of reasons. But most of those, most of those are excuses, at least for me, maybe not for you. And I want to acknowledge something that you know. Jesus didn't heal everybody he met. Did you ever think about that? By the way, he had a lot of friends. And I bet you a bunch of them died. In other words, not just Lazarus. Yeah, his friend Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. But he doesn't raise all his friends from the dead. Matter of fact, his father died. You would think compassion would say you'd raise your father from the dead, but he didn't. How do I know what Jesus decided to do and not to do? I don't. He was the son of God. He had a distinct advantage over me. He knew who to heal and who not to heal. I don't have that advantage. So then how should I live? I should live compassionately. Sounds like the wrong word, but I'm going to use it. Ruthless compassion. Now, having said all that, I want to acknowledge something. Um... We don't have all the answers, right? And I want to acknowledge that your next question, if you're tracking with me, probably not. It's just all inside my own head. <laughs> your next question is, is not who's my neighbor. Your next question is, okay then, I get it. Jesus was compassionate and he told me to live that way. So how should I live? Maybe that's your next question. Well, it is the next question up here. How should we live? I think, I think really we should live wisely for sure and one of the things we need to do when we're trying to live is to acknowledge a reality and that is that the problem is gigantic right remember in deuteronomy he said the poor you're always going to have with you it's not going to go away the problem is gigantic and here's the other thing to acknowledge no system is going to fix it so whoever you're planning to vote for In the upcoming election, 
I can promise you, whoever it is, cannot fix it. They won't fix it, never have, never will. Make a choice, it doesn't matter. No, <laughs> I guess there's something to it. Um, point is, nobody's going to fix this one. And that's where, you remember the guy Jay and Darby I mentioned earlier? That's where he's right. It's not going to be fixed until God back, comes back and fixes it. So just acknowledging that is helpful. But here are some suggestions about how to live. They pretty much um, come under this classification. Take some simple steps that are also deliberate. What I mean by simple steps is you can't fix the whole thing. And you're only one person. So figure out what a simple step is and take it. What I mean by deliberate steps is you certainly won't fix this problem by random acts of kindness. Famous little phrase running around. And actually it won't even transform your soul until your steps are deliberate. Until you make a commitment to do something and stay at it. Take simple steps and deliberate steps. See, here's what we do. We overanalyze, don't we? Right? Especially here. I mean, we're the worst about it in this place, this academic community. You know that. Smile now. I'm talking about you. Self-humor, right? You know it. I know it. We overanalyze. Man, you guys don't think anything is funny. That's funny. <laughs> we overanalyze. We do. I mean, around here... One of, the, one of the famous phrases that comes out of every wonderful conversation, every great idea, is, yeah, but... Are you kidding? We do that all the time, don't we? Don't we? Come on. We constantly do, oh, yeah, that's good, but let's think about this. We're an overanalyzing group of people. So, don't overanalyze. Just Act. Um, I was at a leadership conference this weekend. It actually happened to be here. We've been advertising for it, the Global Leadership Summit, uh, and it was uh, held via satellite at uh, Sherwood Oaks. And a lot of the churches came to help make, make this happen. It was great. Wonderful speakers. I mean, internationally known, business leaders, pastors, all kinds of people, and they were awesome. But I got to tell you, I still think um, I got more out of the comedian than anybody else. <laughs> His name was Michael Jr. You've heard of him, right? Michael Jr., Michael Jr. gets up for two or three times and, and he, he has something to say. And when he's done, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. He got up on one occasion and uh, he gave a, a clip from one of his shows. And he's sitting back here um, and, and the audience is out there like you are. And he, he, he points to somebody and says, man, we hear you can sing. Uh, I want you to sing a clip here for us. Uh, give us a bar or two of Amazing Grace. And that brother picks up the mic. And start singing Amazing Grace. And he's got this incredible voice, baritone voice. It's just rolling. It's so awesome. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. And somewhere along the way, Michael Jr. interrupts him. He says, wait, wait, wait a minute. He said, um, now I want you to sing it again. He said, but this time, I want you to sing it like your daddy's in jail. Your nephew just got shot. 
and you got no money. I want you to sing it like you're from the hood. And this guy starts singing Amazing Grace. Wow. I want to tell you, it was taking the rafters off the roof everywhere that that voice was heard. It was incredible. You know how people do when they really sing? Especially people from the African-American tradition. You know what I'm talking about. The brother was singing it. He was going everywhere with that song. And people were laughing and people were clapping and people were pushing him and people were saying amen. And when it was all over, Michael Jr. cut away from the clip of his show and he just looked at all of us. Leaders trying to figure out how to do it right. And he said, you know what just happened there? He said, the first time, that man sang Amazing Grace from his head. The second time, he sang it from his heart. Go leave with your heart. Boom. I don't even remember what all the speakers said before he came up. Go leave with your heart. Well, I'm saying the same thing. Don't overanalyze it. Be compassionate with your heart. How do you do that? Well, you know what? For starters, you can do it through somebody else. You don't have everything. You don't know how to do everything. You can't do everything. You can actually give to organizations that do that. Like us. That's shameless, isn't it? But I'm serious. I'm serious. The church of Jesus Christ, if it's following its calling, is always doing that. The church of Jesus Christ is extending the good news to the poor. Not just because they might become believers, but because they're made in the image of God. And we have to. We have to. Because we're following Jesus. There's all kinds of reasons to give to the church. That's just one of them. though. You can't do everything. Church can do it on your behalf. There's other wonderful institutions that do the same. Find one of those two. But first give here. And give on behalf of your heart. And let somebody do the work that you can't do. You can also work with other organizations that do it. You don't have to just give. You know, there is a garden out there. Do you know that? In the corner? I'm not going to ask you how many of you have been out there pulling weeds with the rest of the people who are dedicated to this cause. And I'm not suggesting that the only way to help is to pull weeds from the garden. By the way, the garden is not for us. We don't eat any of its fruit. We give it to Mother Hubbard's Cupboard for those who don't have fresh vegetables. And we don't ask who's consuming it. That's just one project you could get involved in. You want to know more, ask us. You could get involved in projects that other organizations have. Find out. So you take Simple, deliberate steps by not overthinking and acting from the heart. You give to organizations that do the work. You work with organizations that you do the work with. 
You watch and pray for opportunities to encourage. I guarantee you, if you open your eyes and open your heart, next week you're going to find someone who is overwhelmingly discouraged. They might be at your workplace. And even though the institution might not mean it, they may have been backed into a corner feeling utterly overwhelmed and discouraged. Do you see their face? Just be compassionate. That's a way to live. See if you can find somebody who's suffering an injustice. Step in and be their defender. And then, with all those ideas and many more, make it a goal this week or another to do something compassionate for another person without getting caught, without anybody knowing. Not even your wife, if you have, or your husband or your children. Just do. There's a big difference between service and self-righteous service. Right? We know that. And I want to conclude with a couple of descriptions of that that come from Renovaria Spiritual Formation Workshop that I've been a part of for years says this, self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. Whereas, true service makes no distinction between large and small. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. Whereas, true service rests contented in hiddenness. Yeah, that's good. Self-righteous service is considered with results. Man, this one hit me. Whereas true service is free of the need to calculate them. You know, I spend a lot of time um, serving the church, the job. Preaching sermons, big part of it. Preparing for this sermon and every other sermon. I'm just telling you folks. It's hard not to calculate. See, I want to talk to a thousand of them. Not just the 400 that show up this Sunday. And I'm afraid it's possible by its form of self-righteous service. I continue, self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims, whereas true service ministers on behalf of the needs of others. Self-righteous service is temporary where true service is ongoing. 
Self-righteous service is insensitive. Self-righteous service is insensitive. Whereas true service withholds as freely as it gives. Self-righteous service fractures community, whereas true service builds community. Self-righteous service relies on human effort, where true service flows out of a relationship with God. I um, was struck by, I think it was the last song we sang, Rob, Stevie. It's all May Week, could sing it again. I don't know what the next one was. Maybe sing both of the next ones and that one too. But the end of the words were, in our life, Lord, be glorified. In our world, Lord, be glorified. For your church, Lord, let us be compassionate so people can experience the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's always a challenge to us. It'd be really easy, Lord, just to look for the happy passages and the fun ideas. It's more difficult to think about things that perhaps are not just naturally us and places we fall short and ways we ought to step it up. And that's what we just did. And that's what your word often does for us. And I thank you that it does. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to have uh, the soft hearts to receive that word. And, and the wisdom and the maturity not to be discouraged by it, but to be uplifted by it. <laughs> that you're calling us to a new kind of life, a life that's not about begrudging giving, but a life that's about service to you by giving to others and produces just pure joy. We thank you that's true, Lord. Now make it true for us. (laughs) The truth of your word is always true. But it's true for us when we step into it. So this week, help us to step into it. In our life, Lord, help us to step into it. To take simple and deliberate steps. And to walk into your world. And be the hands and feet of Jesus. And to share the gospel as compassion. And we'll thank you for what you allow us to do and the joy that comes from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.